0: All right, guys, so here we're going to run through the interwar period, like I said, the period after World War One, through the beginning of uh, the war for the United States, right? Now, remember, the United States, does anybody know? Do we join World War II right away, or does it take a little bit, just like World War One? It takes a while. It takes a while, yeah. So, again, depending where you're from, right? Like, if you're in Asia, uh, the war begins is in the 1930s, early and mid-1930s. If you're uh, in Europe... You know, the, the, usually the thing that marks the beginning of the war is early September of 1939, uh, the German invasion of Poland is usually regarded as the beginning of World War II. So it just kind of depends uh, where you're from, um, you know, marking the beginning of that war. All right, guys, so here in the kind of the first slide, I just review a little bit of some of the key terms uh, from, you know, the overall kind of like chapter or section topic. Uh, real quick, uh, this won't take too long, but does anybody recognize any of these? Maybe from movies from previous classes, anything? Yeah, Axis, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Manhattan Project. All right, cool, so a good amount. In a lot of ways, you know, here within these terms, you almost have a timeline of the war. And I'll go over them really, really quickly. But for the first one, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, this is a late 1920s agreement between some of the major powers. you can kind of tell by the last names, Kellogg was the American diplomat and Briand was the French diplomat basically kind of it's kind of like a promise to ban war um, you know in the late 1920s but you know I, I use this one as an example because it's a good example of how like the U.S. you know was promising not to promote war or to ban war and make it illegal but we were still not taking like a leadership role especially in the events surrounding Europe at the time so you know it's almost kind of like a it didn't have a whole lot of like you know gust behind it or strength behind it it was kind of in a way kind of like an empty promise just like a token movement for peace uh, for the good neighbor policy we'll uh, elaborate here on this in a moment but this is a, the basically the policy towards latin america uh, beginning in the 1930s under fdr it's called the good neighbor policy Again, axis powers are the uh you know opposing faction to the allied powers in world war ii so remember world war one we had the allied and the central powers now we have the allies and the axis powers and of course Anybody know what three countries make up the Axis? Uh, Germany, Italy, and, Germany. Uh, Germany, Very good. Yeah. Italy and, and Japan. Japan, Absolutely, yeah. So those three make up the Axis. Very good. Uh, neutrality and Lend-Lease are related. So just like in World War One, the U.S. begins the war neutral. And there's, uh, for a few years, three waves of neutrality acts. That basically, they first state that we're not going to trade, like basically with countries that are involved in the war. Then later on, it kind of backtracks and says we will trade, but we will only trade on a cash carry basis for supplies, meaning that if you want guns from us, if you want weapons, tanks, whatever, you got to pay for them before you get them. And eventually what does away with this is in the late 1930s, something called Lend-Lease that was kind of controversial because Lend-Lease what kind of did away with the cash carry option where basically, and this is mainly directed at England, France, the Soviets to some extent as well but mostly to England, and that was basically that we're going to give England a bunch of loans and all the supplies they need to win this war. So, you know, in a way, what a lot of historians have kind of pointed out is by the time we do Lend-Lease, it's looking very likely like we're going to join the war, because not too long after Lend-Lease, we have the first one of the uh, first ever or first only peacetime drafts in U.S. history, meaning that, hey, we're officially not a part of this war. But in 1940, they institute a draft of young men either way to make sure we are prepared for such a conflict. So, you know, the the kind of path is already kind of there. Uh, Pearl Harbor, of course, you know, what nation attacked us in Hawaii? Japan. Japan. Yeah, the Empire of Japan. We'll talk about the lead up to that here in a moment. Uh, D-Day stands for Deployment Day is June 6, 1944. It's when the British, the Canadians and the Americans open up the Western Front in Europe. Yalta Conference is one of the last meeting of a group we call the Big Three. So as the war is kind of wrapping up towards the end, uh, Winston Churchill of England, FDR of the U.S., and Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union meet and kind of discuss the parameters of what's going to happen with Europe after the war. And, you know, these are big lingering things. You know, a lot of ways the beginning of the Cold War, all that stuff is kind of like spawned here from this big meeting and these big ideas. So Yalta Conference Very, very important. And lastly, the Manhattan Project is a top secret, multi-billion dollar U.S. government project to build, what is the biggest, baddest weapon, at least up to this point? Yeah, nuclear weapons, right, or atomic bombs. Uh, So, you know, pretty amazing stuff, and all these, in a way, kind of reveal the timeline for the U.S. in World War II. All right, guys, so retreat, revival, and rivalry. Uh, So for retreat in Europe here, again, examining the interwar period, so you already know from the, what we talked about with the 1920s and all that, right? Like the, you know, people were tired of World War One, right, and all the death and destruction that happened, also tired of the flu pandemic that occurred, you know, basically at the same time and uh, took a heavy, heavy toll. And this was the case for most of, you know, Europe as well, right? They're focused on rebuilding and re-kind of asserting themselves in the 1920s. And then lo and behold, in the late 1920s, the Great Depression hits. So each country is worried about their own unemployment rates, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, one of the key things, what's illustrated here by this political cartoon on this slide is the establishment of the League of Nations, right? So this is kind of poking fun at the U.S., so to speak, by saying, hey, this bridge was designed by the president of the U.S., right? And remember, it was the baby of Woodrow Wilson, who's our president during World War I. And yet, what's the problem with the League of Nations, right? Who never joined the League of Nations, the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. The Congress never affirmed or kind of allowed for the U.S. to join. So, you know, some historians kind of look back and kind of been a bit critical with the U.S. that, hey, you know, after World War One, the U.S. is the number one economic power in the world, right, among the top military powers in the world as well. Had they maybe been a little bit more assertive in their role, kind of like we are today, right, it's kind of like the world's policeman. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps the rise of dictators and all that, you know, maybe it still happens, right? Maybe it doesn't happen. We don't really know. But it's an interesting kind of what if and kind of commentary on that. All right, guys, for cooperation with Latin America. So this is what the previous term, the good neighbor policy that's over here. So the good neighbor policy is basically FDR's kind of policy towards Latin America. And it's called that because, you know, up to this point, um, to sum up our relations with Latin America is, you know, the U.S. kind of been a little bit overbearing. Some people may say even like a bully at times, right, occupying these small countries when they had trouble with debt. Remember the situation with the Panama Canal and how that was handled with the nation of Colombia. So what FDR is kind of trying to do is roll that back a bit. And he's fairly successful. Um, Part of this is withdrawing American troops from Latin American countries. But at the same time he does that, he's still increasing trade overall and the economic ties of the countries. So Latin America will still be an important trade partner with the U.S. And the U.S. will still retain kind of that economic influence and all that, but with much less troop presence. That was around under Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, uh, some of those other presidents. So that's a little bit on the good neighbor policy. All right, guys. Now, the last one, rivalry in Asia. Of course, by rivalry again. Who am I talking about? Who is going to be the U.S. rival in Asia? Japan. Japan. Very good. So, all right. How am I? All right. So this is going to take a little bit, but, but it's okay. You can, we have a chance now to examine the issue. And they discussed this in the you know crash course there with John Green that you just saw. But you know what I always the I always like talking about this topic because in a way um, the Japanese are a really impressive story, or if nothing else, super fascinating story. Because to give you just a little bit on Japanese history, did you all look at the Japanese uh, civilization or anything or culture in in world history a little bit or? Nah, not really? Anybody recall? A little bit? The super old ones. The super old ones? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Like samurai and feudalism. Oh, okay. That's what I was talking about. Cool. Okay. So you know that, you know, just like feudal Europe, right? It was kind of a system of lords and the samurai were kind of, you know, sort of under the lords or these noble warriors and stuff. But in large, you know, largely the country was rural and agricultural, right? Most people were peasant farmers, things like that. They did have a system with a shogun, right? A daimyo, kind of like regional governors, and then an emperor on top. Well, this all begins to change in the late 1860s. Now, what happens in the late 1860s? So in the late 1860s, The first American naval vessels show up to Japan and kind of show off, right? The technology, the cannons, you know, the things that makes, uh, you know, the U.S. Navy kind of one of the uh, better navies. At that time, we weren't even that great. But uh, that initial kind of linking of trade and a relationship with the United States begins a four to five decade like crusade by the Japanese where they go from a largely rural agrarian nation to an industrialized nation, expanding the railroads, largely doing away with a lot of their cultural history, right? Things like the samurai and all that are almost like banned because of its uh, link to that old kind of feudal system. They still have an emperor. But, um, you know, for instance, like a lot of the leadership of Japan during World War II, they went to U.S. schools. Some of them went to the University of California. Some of them went to... Uh, schools along the west coast and things like that so the, these two countries have a long history now the issue starts to emerge after 1900 or so because by that time uh, japan in 1905 uh, in a war with the with russia they conquered the korean peninsula so they're in control of both what is now north and south korea um, there is a kind of agreement made with teddy roosevelt or his government at the time to kind of like you know sort of chill out a little bit but it doesn't really hold too long They make multiple attempts in the 1920s to kind of curtail Japanese expansion. Uh, There's a big conference that's held in 1921 in Washington, D.C., where basically they try to kind of, you know, it's almost like an arms, what is it called? Like an arms, uh, eh, like an arms treaty where they say, hey, okay, Japan, the the top countries in the world, right, the naval powers, no more building of ships. We're going to kind of try to limit how many ships we build and all that stuff. It only holds for a few years and then the japanese and other countries also start building either way and then the big thing 1931 and as i said in the video japan conquers manchuria a really large northeastern region of china and then the big straw that really kind of wrecks the relationship with the u.s is when the japanese begin expanding into coastal china they start taking over cities in on the along the coast of china and this is seen as a big violation of the US policy of open door trade, right? Everybody's allowed fair trade with China. So that's the beginning of kind of like the wrecking of the relationship and how, you know, basically from that point to within a couple of years, you know, Pearl Harbor happens. And that's how that kind of thing goes goes down in the um, you know, down the toilet basically. Um anybody have any questions? I know kind of a lot of moving parts here. I'll be happy to clear with you. wasn't Japan like all the way over there, like in island? And where, sorry? I was wondering how they were able to so much land. Well, I'll show you, like, a map of their empire. So Sixta real quick, is just asking, uh, like, how they expanded so much and all that. Um, I'll show you a map of their, like, sphere of influence, and I can walk you through a little bit of it. But part of it is the Navy and stuff. Is That's where you know, a lot of their investment is going to be. But I'll come back and touch on that. All right, guys, a little bit more on isolationism. So remember, isolationism, kind of a country just sticking to their own stuff, right? Doesn't want to get wrapped up in foreign politics, all this stuff. And again, this is really the popular sort of method and the way countries do things in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so on, on top of all this, and so here I'm just trying to emphasize how the U.S. starts the war neutral. And you also had a, a pretty large presence of pacifists within the country. We always, when we talk about World War II, we don't think of, like, anti-war rallies and all that stuff. But there was some sentiment of that and and some relatively loud sentiment, especially at universities and colleges, you know, against some of the things going on and potentially joining the war as well. Now, again, the final straw, right, in Europe will be the invasion of Poland. And just to give you a little bit of background on there, you know, the scary thing about that whole situation, let me go to the map real quick, and I'll come back. So here's Poland, right, Uh, kind of the eastern portion of Europe. So Poland did not exist, remember, prior to World War I. Poland used to be part of uh, a region called Prussia that belonged to the Germans. And then the other eastern part belonged to, um, you know, uh, to the Soviets. So basically what is struck in 1939 is something called the Non-Aggression Pact between the Nazi regime and between the Soviets, where they basically agree to split Poland in half. Hey, you retake your land, we retake our land, everything is good. And uh, this is incredibly scary because now, again, you know, the Nazi regime, as they expand into Poland, shows that they're not happy just reconquering, right, the central part of Europe. You know, they're expanding further and further out. Now, the interesting kind of what if in in history in general is had this, you know, agreement between the Soviets and the, uh, you know, and the Germans held, what would have happened? Because as we'll talk about a little bit today, but later on, you know, the brunt of the German army is going to be busy fighting the Russians later on, right? the Soviets, because of violation of this treaty. Basically the Germans don't stick to it and eventually they end up pushing, you know, further and further into Russia later on. And this is where we have those massive battles like Stalingrad and all these things where, you know, um, you know the armies are just kind of slaughtering each other in crazy, crazy numbers. But, but this is kind of the setup to that. And again, once this happens, once uh, the Germans invade Poland, Uh, The British and the French declare war on Germany, and then, you know, there you have the kind of beginning of the war. And, of course, the U.S. will join a little bit down the road. Sorry about that. Okay. All right, guys, anybody know this individual here, leader of Italy during World War II? Actually, yeah, Mussolini, right? Benito Mussolini. Some interesting kind of fun facts or interesting things about kind of his background. Um, He had a really interesting background. He spent some time as a teacher, was a journalist for some time. And again, within the 1920s and controlling the media, the narrative, you know, almost like Hitler was kind of appointed sort of the leader of Italy. And in a lot of ways, you know, Hitler kind of, you know, copied a lot of his methods. Like, uh, you know, Hitler had the black shirts. I think they were the black shirts. Yeah, like his sort of SS, you know, group that went after his enemies. Uh, Mussolini had the brown shirts, um, you know, militarily overall, uh, you know, Mussolini will be much less successful so, you know, Italy will be out of the war relatively quickly, and then also basically in Rome, eventually his own people uh, put him and his wife of the time to death at the center there in Rome. So, you know, just kind of a crazy sort of two you know decades or so of, you know, relative obscurity, rise to power, and then, you know, being killed by his own people, uh, you know, because of what happened in World War Two. So, uh, just kind of a fascinating story of Mussolini. All right, guys, so in the midst of all this kind of craziness and the war about to break out, uh, we have a presidential election in 1940. And, you know, it's almost like Groundhog Day all over again, right? Uh, President FDR or Franklin D. Roosevelt wins again. So this is his third victory. Remember, won in 1932. Uh, People like the way he's handling the Depression, all that. Wins again in 36. Here wins again in 40. And he'll win one more time in 1944. Here is the war kind of gets underway. So, again, only president to ever win, you know, that many elections. And basically, he's the reason why we have the 22nd Amendment, right, that you can only serve two terms uh, as the executive or as the president of the United States. So pretty, pretty intense. All right, guys. So here we'll expand a little bit on kind of the East Asian situation. All right. So how do we go from neutrality to an undeclared war to basically, you know, a showdown in the Pacific? So the key thing you need to keep in mind overall is that, you know, what gets us involved in the war uh, is the role of the Japanese Empire, right? And, of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor. But, you know, this is a good look at 1942. Now, by this point, the war has already kind of started. This is a good look at sort of the apex, right, or the prime or the, the limits of uh, the uh, Japanese Empire, you know, during World War II. So here, of course, the Japanese homelands, right? In Korea, they'd conquered in 1905, Manchuria, 1930-31, China, coastal China, 1936-37. Now, basically, what happens from here is, again, the U.S. and Japan are really having a rough relationship now because the U.S. wants wants the Japanese out of China. It's one thing to control Korea and Manchuria, but they do not want them in coastal China. So it kind of depends on the perspective you want to take. You know, the U.S. begins basically kind of like uh, slapping sanctions on the Japanese and banning certain trade goods like oil and other things. And this probably didn't help. But, you know, you know, the U.S. kind of trying to be firm in their hand against the Japanese short of war. Now, what the really the straw that kind of breaks the camel's back is in 1940 or so, the Japanese begin expanding into Southeast Asia, in particular, the area of Indonesia. So a lot of people live here. Right but also really, really rich in oil reserves Indonesia. And so once this happens, um, you know, almost all diplomatic relations are are, are off between the U.S. and uh, and the Japanese. So this is kind of what precipitates. That's basically what happens right before the attack on Pearl Harbor, which you can't see here, but would be kind of like somewhere over here. And uh, again, as to Sixto's question, right, involving all these areas that it's kind of like impressive about the Japanese because they actually don't have like, they do have a impressive Navy. I think it was the third ranked Navy at the time. But, uh, you know, part of the reason they're able to conquer so much is because of, you know, their battleships, right. Their submarines and, you know, efficient use of their airplanes, all those things. Uh, This also play into later on when the U S starts to try to fight back, right. And retake these locations, the air force is going to have a huge role to play because, you know, these are, like, some of these areas are, of course, really big, but there's a lot of space out here, right, between some of these islands and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting to see how that happens. Also, like, culturally, it's really interesting to see how the Japanese fight differently than the Germans, for instance, right? Uh, for example, you know, you've heard, y'all know what POWs are, right? What are POWs? You know, and POWs. Oh, prisoner of war. Yeah, so, you know, for... A lot of like the Euro, Euro, like the European style of fighting, all that stuff, right? You know, there's no hope of victory and stuff like that. You surrender, right? You're taken into the care by of your enemy. Um, anybody know what the Japanese believe in? This is when they start like ramming planes into American battleships and all that stuff. Oh, that it's like better to die in battle than to surrender. Yeah, like, you know, better to have like a glorious death, right? Than to kind of face the shame of defeat and stuff like that. So it reveals a lot of kind of cultural differences. And this is really a struggle, right? And, and a lot of people believe that's why ultimately the U.S. will end up using, you know, the two nuclear weapons, right, in, uh, in kind of the southern part of Japan. But, uh, you know, just a very different kind of culture and, uh, you know, one that's extremely fierce and uh, will present a lot of difficulties for the United States and others. All right, guys, I'll just probably cover the first one and then I'll, I'll expand next time on the rest of the parts. So for this one, Turning the Tide, uh, this, so this one again shows you the expanse of the Japanese Empire. And this one here, you can see the basically peak of the, uh, you know, German-held lands roughly around 1942. So by this time, the U.S. is in, but the U.S. takes a little bit to mobilize, right, because the attack of Pearl Harbor happens uh, on December uh, was it December 6th, right, on December 7th. And then the next day, the U.S. declares war. But it takes us a little while to get revved up. So here, you know, the scary thing is how, um, how do we say how much expansion is going on into the Soviet Union. Now, eventually, especially after 19, in late 1942, the Soviets will start pushing back a bit on the main German army. But, you know, the big focus for the Americans and the British early on, so I don't know if you ever played a video game on World War II, usually start the video game in North Africa and places like that. Because the U.S. very much in the beginning takes kind of a, follows a, the British's kind of lead in the war. So the idea was to kind of soften up the periphery or the outside of the defenses of the the germans and then eventually they attempt to kind of conquer or try to move up through the boot of italy now it works pretty well for a while but eventually the forces are stalled out here so what begins then is the planning for the largest you know land or amphibious invasion in in world history or which will occur of course on d-day in 1944 and we'll talk about it next time but Again, in that, you know, few days, millions of troops will be launched and paratroopers will be used to open up this front. Because the problem for the Soviets and what the Soviets are continuously asking from the British and from the Americans is, hey, we cannot take this, you know, beating for so long. I mean, they have been basically. But, you know, uh, the, you know, it's like fighting, you know, basically, you know, the Soviets are taking kind of the brunt of the German army and their forces If the the U.S. and the British are able to open a front in France or anywhere else, they'll have to move their troops, right, and reinforce and back up those locations, which will lighten the load over here in Eastern Europe. So these are kind of the big things going on, you know, in the European theater that will play out and that will lead to kind of, uh, you know, how the war will will end eventually and stuff. So, you know, pretty fascinating. Again, you can't – the numbers are almost unimaginable. You know, you'll have battles like the Battle of Stalingrad, which a lot of people claim is kind of the key turning point in the war uh, that involves uh, basically, you know, the Soviets versus the Germans. You know, uh, millions and millions of troops right over a few months, Uh, you know, thousands of tanks. Just the scale is kind of incredible and uh, almost hard to to fathom and stuff. But, you know, I think that's a a good point to halt. And uh, again, you'll get the rest of this a little bit later this week. Um, Any questions, guys? Anything I can clear up? For any of this, I'd be happy to. You can pause for a moment. Okay, sounds good. Let me just pause the recording real quick.